0: Welcome to the All Saints Agape Lecture Series. This lecture was part of a three-part course on the book of Titus, taught by Dr. Paul Owen of Montreat College, and originally given in September and October of 2020. Enjoy. The Lord be with
1: you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we know that the book of Acts takes us to about eighty sixty-two. 62. Uh, Paul's in prison in Rome for two years. 80, 60-62, to 62. and we're told that at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 28, um, when we look at the beginning of Titus, you can see that, that Paul has been in Crete, and he's left Titus there in verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. So Paul never goes to Crete um, in the book of Acts. In fact, Crete, Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, which is interesting. Um, but uh, per, perhaps one of the reasons why... Some people are skeptical about the book um, but uh, we know that Paul certainly had not been in Crete during the time frame of Acts so unless we presume this is some sort of fictional correspondence, then um, we would have to put the visit to Crete outside the framework of Acts. so it's really not hard to do if you only presume that uh, Paul at the end of that two years is uh, released from prison in Rome um, and which all the early church fathers that comment on the issue recognize as early as the first Clement at the end of the first century. It's clear that Paul went further to the um, to the West beyond the regions that are described in the book of Acts. So that's a very early seated memory. So um, Paul was released from prison in Rome around AD 62 and engaged in another uh, missionary um, journey that took him further to the west, and this would be the uh, time frame that we would fit the the book of uh, Titus into. Um, so Crete is a big island, as I mentioned last week. Maybe some of you have been there. Uh, I've I've never I've never gone, uh, but uh, anyone ever been to Crete? Just out of curiosity. Okay, so some of you, well traveled people, have been there. Uh, I'd love to go to some of these places sometime, but. It's a huge island. Um, I think it's like the 88th biggest in the world or something like that. Um, and it's about 100 miles off the southern coast of Greece. So we know Paul's writing from the area of a, of a city called Nicopolis because in chapter 3 and verse 12, he mentions he's, about, he's going to stay there for the winter. Uh, Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis where I've decided to spend the winter there, Titus 3.12. So that, that is a city in the western part of what then was southern Achaia, or, uh, or I'm sorry, what then was the region of Achaia, which is basically southern Greece. So he's writing from Nicopolis, um, and it's after AD 62. And it probably, it's got to be probably a couple of years after, because we would presume a decent amount of time has passed, because Paul has been to Crete. And he's left Titus in Crete to uh, settle the form of the church in that island. And Titus has been there long enough that he's about to be released from his duties, because Paul mentions um, in chapter three that uh, um, in where uh, am I in verse twelve. That he says, "When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, uh, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis." So in other words, Titus is going to be relieved by uh, uh, this character, uh, Artemis. So or Or Tychicus. So he's about to be relieved of his duties, presumably he hasn't just started. So that really doesn't allow the book to be dated any earlier than AD64 or 65. And Paul's dead by AD 67 or 68. So um, probably is, this is written around AD 64 or 65. I and mean, that's a pretty conventional dating for the book, for people that accept that it is a, an authentic writing of, of St. Paul, which we will presume uh, for our setting. Okay, um, so far so good, any questions? Um, throw it there's thought out there if anyone has any questions so far But the about Acts and titus yeah. i do see there's chat here yeah G- bars. Years. Seems is like, that still going on
0: uh, i don't think so father gene i think you might be the only one
1: okay says it looks like i'm in prison um, <laughs> i don't know what that means i'm sorry paul (laughs) no that's all right um so anyways let's look at verse one uh paul bond servant of god i'm reading from the new king james bible i don't know what version you guys use at your church uh if you use the authorized version yeah so the the new king james is usually quite close to the authorized so uh it's kind of handy that way um So, uh, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, uh, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of uh, God our Savior. So Paul calls himself a a, a bondservant and an apostle. And you get that language in some of Paul's uh, other letters as well. Bondservant is a common title for prophets in the Old Testament. And so Paul would be associating himself with the Old Testament uh, prophets by calling himself God's slave or God's bondservant. Uh, One of the most famous verses you might want to think of there is uh, Amos uh, 3. And uh, verse 7, where uh, we read, um, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So the prophets are the people that God reveals his secrets to. and the apostles basically fit that paradigm as the New Testament uh, persons to whom God entrusts the mystery of his revelation. And uh, he's also an apostle, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, the apostles being the counterparts to the prophets, and so these are specially selected men whose ministry is to carry the revelation of Jesus Christ to the, to the whole world, and so we see already in the first century that the apostles are the ones who begin to take the gospel out to new and distant regions, and there are many early memories and the fathers about the, the extent of their travels uh, before they ended their lives. Hey, Paul, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, and I just clicked something and the screen went off. Can you still see me? See yeah. You. Okay. Yep. I don't know actually how to get back and I'm afraid to click too much. <laughs> you yeah, oh, always see go me, go that's ahead. fine.
0: Yes, go ahead. I just wanted to ask you about the uh, first uh, chapter I mean, the uh, the second verse, uh, did you, uh, you, that was translated before time began? Yeah. This is, and the one I have is promised. I'm using the RSV, promised ages ago. Yeah. Is that, the, that's the RSV translation? I don't is, have the RSV in front of is me. That but... is, does that literally mean before time began or is that a, a colloquial for a uh, long time ago?
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul also writes, and when Paul's talking about the mystery of God's plan, he certainly roots it in what we call some sort of eternal counsel of God. And uh, I, would, I uh, forget, um, I did sort of consult uh, when I, I mean, I can, where's my,
0: yeah, if, like. that, that's okay.
1: I mean, uh, I, would... the, the, I If I recall, right, it's, it's basically before the ages.
0: So and, I mean, if the um, time began, then it's before creation.
1: Yes, I, I think that it would be referring to a time, if you're asking me, I think it would be referring to a time before <laughs> creation because of the way Paul uses that kind of language. Yeah.
0: yeah um, that that sidetrack you, uh, Paul.
1: Yeah. Really, that was just so... Yeah, it literally says before the times of the ages. Oh, okay. And 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 that kind of uh, that kind of language usually indicates some sort of eternal, some sort of eternal counsel of God, in which he's before he's made the world, he's basically within the scope of his providence and his wisdom, he has planned out the ages. Now that that can be iterated in different ways, depending right. on how you parse things but there's some sort of eternal counsel of god's will that's going on there right thank you yeah um so uh that's all i was going to say about the apostle thing um and then what the apostles preach is Paul, paul calls it the faith of god's elect and and in the bible the election is a way of speaking about the god's people as people who have been specially favored by god it's it's chosen language it's favored language uh, so it's meant to emphasize the fact that our salvation is rooted in God's grace it's not rooted in what we deserve um it doesn't presume any particular you know uh detailed scheme as to understanding how human freedom relates to God's plan but it 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 certainly emphasizes that God does the choosing and we do the undeserving part right um So, of course, in the Old Testament, Israel is God's chosen people. And you get this language like in Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 to 8, um, where uh, we find Moses saying, um, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Uh, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. Um, Oh, and I'm just realizing, whatever it is I clicked, it just—it has the same effect as if I was looking at my notes. So I'll need you guys to kind of keep me accountable. I wonder what I would click to get. It just says the letters zoom in front of me.
0: I wouldn't mess with
1: it. Yeah. So well, um, just—it's working very well. We'll—we'll we'll hold you accountable. Okay. Say you know just that now and then give a Pentecostal amen or something. Amen. I know that you're still there, but. Um, You know, the the Lord your God has chosen you, Deuteronomy 7, 6, to be a people for himself. And it says in verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you because you were more numerous, uh, but because the Lord loves you, verse 8. So that's always the emphasis in this kind of chosen language. Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy emphasizes it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're, be, I'm paraphrasing a little bit that you're being given the land uh, because you're a stubborn people. Um, so that kind of idea is, is present with that language.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then back with, uh, back with Titus, um, uh, the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth that accords with godliness. So the faith, of the elect, must involve acknowledgment of the truth that accords with godliness, and this truth has got to have to do with the truth of human sin, Uh, the truth of our our own lack of deserving of God's uh, gift of life, the the truth of Christ as the satisfaction for our sins, Um, the truth that we've been chosen because of Christ's merits and mediation, and despite our sins. We have to acknowledge the truth that we are not worthy and God has graciously chosen to save us. And um, it says, which accords with godliness, which is so fitting, because it seems to me that the the one of the central ideas of the Christian gospel is that the only way to cultivate godliness is through gratitude. Um, godliness is rooted in gratitude. Gratitude is based on the, the sheer gratuity of, of God's gift of salvation. So uh, we do good works out of gratitude for the life that God's freely bestowed on us through Jesus Christ. And um, so the acknowledgement of the truth is the truth of the gospel and its graciousness, as Paul explains it. And this is with go- accords with godliness because you might think, well, if if, if salvation is a gratuitous gift, then there's no motivation for good works. But in Paul's thinking, it's just the opposite. So he wants to emphasize that even though salvation is not on the basis of works, it does produce godliness through um, through gratitude, as 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 the gospels say. When in Jesus, in one of his uh, statements, um, the one who loves much is for uh, the one who's forgiven much loves much, right? that where the scene where the woman is washing his feet with her hair and the Pharisees are sort of frowning on the scene. So um, I would see all that going on there. Um, Verse two, then it does continue to to kind of, which uh, Father Glenn was just talking about there. It does come a little bit closer to getting us to thinking about the mystery of a predestination because it says in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promise before time began. Um, And so it does speak of something that God has planned in the eternal counsel of his will. Um, And so this means that the elect have been promised salvation, of course, always under the terms of the gospel. And therefore it is something that is secure and, and is guaranteed to all of God's chosen people, the faith of God's elect which has been promised before time began. Now, again, that doesn't presume any particular way of working out the details of that, but there's no theological system, um, whether it be Calvinistic or Arminian or some other model, um, that doesn't acknowledge the, the biblical language of election and predestination and planning and foreknowledge and so forth, the, this is all part of the biblical vocabulary that gets parsed and iterated in different ways. And it's certainly here in in Titus without giving us a technical explanation of it. Um, so are you guys still there? Yep, we're here. Okay, Absolutely. Good. Um, all of us, you've lost no one. Okay, good, good. Um, so we, we are finite, finite mortals, of course. Uh, we don't know who the elect are. Um, but we not with the way God knows it. Right. Um, but we do know for certain the terms of the gospel and that is the means whereby all the elect are saved. And we know that God's promises to his people can't fail. And so if we receive the good news of Jesus Christ into our souls with true gratitude, then it cannot fail to produce godliness. And it will ultimately eventuate in a welcome into the heavenly inheritance, which our Lord promises uh, us uh, upon his return. So I would compare uh, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11, where Peter basically talks about the importance of cultivating godliness as a means of making our calling and election sure and finding a, a certain uh, en- entrance into our heavenly reward at the end of the day. So, but it says, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So, verse three then continues from verse two. Um, God has not lied, right? Says so the God who cannot lie. God has not lied, but instead He's fulfilled His promise when He manifested His word in the fullness of time. Uh, in due time, in the language of the New King James, verse 3. Um, so preaching is the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God uh, for the salvation of the elect in Christ. God has no plan for salvation other than the preaching of the, the cross of Christ, right? That The cross of Christ, which is the content of the word that is preached, is the manifest fulfillment of the will and plan of god um, from before time began now i think here it's important that we not reduce preaching to the homily and um, i emphasize this a lot in my classes Um, public worship is preaching it is proclamation Uh, so preaching is prayer scripture reading hymns, icons, church ornaments, sacraments, ritual. Uh, I take this as all the proclamation of the gospel. The whole liturgy in its churchly setting is designed to proclaim Christ crucified to the world. And so when it, said, it manifests his word through preaching, what this ultimately means is the church, because the church in its concrete existence is the preaching of the gospel. Um, and the latter half of verse three speaks of what was entrusted to him according to the commandment of God, our savior, right? Which is committed to me according to the commandment of God, our savior. Um, and what was entrusted to Paul is, um, the word of God's promise, which extends life to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And this response to Christ is what is commanded of all who hear the message. And this this commanding language, in other words, the proclamation of the gospel demands a response from man. And uh, doesn't let man just be uh, neutral about the message. Um, that's that's the, the force of that commanding language. And it's picked up again in chapter 2 when it says in verses 11 and following of Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Very similar uh, imagery there. Then it says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us. So the response to God's giving Himself for us is uh, to deny to deny this world and to look for the hope of the world to come that Jesus will bring to us upon His return. That is basically what the the response that man is commanded to give to the gospel.
0: We're with you, Father.
1: Father, I'm sorry. We're with oh, you, uh, Paul. Not me. Uh, uh, but um, well, sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. It's um, not a prophecy either. My uh, yeah, my uh, my dogs call me uh, father, so they there you go. They see me as a father. Um, so all right, let's look at verse four. Then um, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, and it's not actually in my notes, but you mentioned that father thing. And I have a friend who uh, has been coming to All Saints, uh, but he balks at calling a priest father. And uh, he always cites where Jesus says, don't call any man father, and he's not sure what to make of that. But what I'm trying to point out to him is how often in the New Testament epistles, uh, fatherly imagery is used and assumed. And this is right. one good example of that, Titus, a true son in our common faith. If there's a son in the faith, there's got to be a father in the faith, right? Right. So I think most of us recognize that when Jesus says, call no man father, it's hyperbole. The same way he says, don't take any oaths is hyperbole and uh, so forth. But um, this children father imagery is all over the place in the epistles. So just wanted to point out that that's a good example of that. Um, So verse four, of course, identifies Titus as the recipient of the letter. Um, and it's interesting, Titus doesn't ever appear in Acts. Um, not sure why. I don't think I have a really good explanation as to why he doesn't appear by name. Uh, we, we know for sure that he is um, a... Uh, see, here's the thing that makes it puzzling. Um, we know he's an associate of Paul's because he's mentioned in Galatians and 2 Corinthians. And uh, Galatians and 2 Corinthians, even in academia, are books that nobody really doubts Paul wrote. Um, I mean, Second Corinthians, there's some, there's some quibbles about the, struct, the uh, composition of it in terms of was it originally broken into pieces that got put together or something, but basically everyone acknowledges it came from Paul. And so people who, who are skeptical about the book of Acts um, view it as being written by somebody who'd read Paul's letters like people who don't think Luke wrote it, but somebody else wrote it. And so anybody who's read Paul's letters knows about Titus. So even if you thought Acts was fictitious, which I by no means do, why wouldn't somebody insert Titus's name into the narrative based on reading Paul's letters? So even if you're a skeptic, I think the lack of mention of Titus in Acts is a, is a kind of a curiosity. And uh, at any rate, now there's no question that Titus was a real person and that Paul knew him. He's mentioned in Galatians 2.3. He's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.13. He's mentioned in uh, 2 Corinthians 7.6. And he's mentioned a number of times in 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, 8, 8.6, 8.16, 8.23. So if you look at those references, we can gather a few facts about Timothy. I'm sorry, about Titus. We can gather a few facts about Titus. Um, One we know is a Greek convert to Christianity. You get that from Galatians 2, 3. Okay, so he's mentioning Galatians. And if you, if you date Galatians on the early side, which I'm personally inclined to do, but uh, there's some discussion about when Galatians is written. But if, if you go with the early day of Galatians, that would put Titus being there with Paul from his first missionary journey onwards. So he would have been there all along in, in Paul's missionary work. But at any rate, he's definitely mentioned in Galatians. Um, Now, based on 2 Corinthians, we know at least Titus was with Paul during his third missionary journey. Um, That's AD 53 to 57. And so that would be, if you read Acts 18, 23 to Acts 21, 16, that's where they have the third mission described. There's no question Titus is there, even though he's not named. So, and again, if you go with the early date for Galatians, he's there from Acts 13 onward. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2 Corinthians 8:23, Paul calls Titus uh, his uh, fellow worker and um, his partner, his partner and fellow worker, Titus. So he certainly was a minister of considerable rank and responsibility. We can say at least that much. Now, when you read um, verse uh, four, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, you'll know that it differs a little bit from some of the modern renditions in some of your uh, modern versions. And that has to do with the manuscripts and the readings that they have. Um, if you're looking at something like the NIV, for example, you'd see the difference. So in some of the newer translations, uh, grace, mercy, and peace is just grace and peace, right? And where we have the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, some of the modern translations just have Christ Jesus, our Savior. And in my opinion, these, these shorter readings are best understood as attempts by well-meaning scribes to kind of conform Paul's language to the way he talks in some of his other letters. And so I I actually think that the the more flowery, longer wording that you get in the King James and the New King James is um, uh, less conformable to the way Paul speaks in other places and therefore uh, internally um, stronger uh, in terms of the likelihood of it being the authentic reading. Basically, that's a flowery way of saying, I I think that the the authorized and the New King James have uh, good evidence to support their uh, choice of wording. Okay, Um, so that is uh, basically brings us up to uh, verse five where Paul has introduced himself, he's identified Titus as the recipient of the letter and he's about to start uh, sort of the letter proper. I, are there any any questions? Again, all I, all I see is the Zoom uh, word in front of me. I can't see your faces or anything. I think
0: you should uh, un- uh, unmute people, Father. Father Sean.
1: If anyone has a question, I think
0: they can unmute themselves. If you can't, just raise your hand and I can unmute you. Uh, Paul, I have just one quick question. Yeah. Is, does Titus come up in any of the extra biblical sources
1: early on at all, as he mentioned, or is he oh. his name appear? Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he is, um, but uh, I would have to. I would have to dig into that a little bit more uh, in terms of where outside the New Testament he's first named. Yeah, um, right. I'd, I'd have to look. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so, verse five. For this reason, uh, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Um, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless um, as uh, a steward of God, um, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, uh, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the word of truth, I'm sorry, holding fast the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So I just want to dwell a little bit on this shift of, of, of language here from elder, which is our, the, actually the word for presbyter, Um, here in the plural, elders, presbyters. And then verse 7 refers to the bishop. Uh, A bishop or the bishop um, must be blameless. So uh, there are a lot of discussions about the form of church government hinge upon particular readings of verses 5 and 7. And so I just want to explain how I see this, uh, what I think is going on here because I think the passage is often misread. So in the very earliest uh, Greek churches, I'm talking about the churches from the 30s up to about AD 62, um, the terms overseer and presbyter um, do seem to be used uh, interchangeably uh, to refer to what we might call parish priests or rectors. Um, I don't see any evidence in the New Testament for a like a lay elder or a lay presbyter, but um, the the priests, the ministers, are sometimes called uh, overseers or uh, episcopal bishops, sometimes presbyters, um, and so they serve local congregations under the supervision of the apostles. So you've got apostles, and under the apostles, you have these pastors that have various titles. And then you have deacons who serve as sort of curates or assistants to these pastors. And so in that earliest setting, it seems to me that the term episcopos, overseer, emphasizes the administrative responsibility of the pastors. And the term presbyter points to their designated office as the teachers of the congregations. So one is sort of an administrative term and one is more of a uh, um, pastoral term, if you will, kind of like the way we use the word uh, priest. Now, here's the problem, though. Um, We know that by the time you get to the very beginning of the second century, that um, within a few decades of Paul writing the book of Titus, that already throughout uh, Syria, uh, uh, up into Turkey and Greece and over into southern Italy, that the church has already arrived at more or less what we would call a a diocesan structure, where you have bishops who have oversight over cities and their, their surrounding regions, and they are assisted by a body of presbyters and their deacons. So how do you get from elders and and, uh, overseers or episcopoi, bishops, being more or less interchangeable titles to um, a diocesan structure where the bishop is a clearly delineated leader who is distinguished from the ordinary presbyters. And I actually think that the pastoral epistles give us uh, the key to this transition now you might notice I mentioned the Greek churches involving this transition because I think that the Jewish churches, from the very beginning had a more or less episcopal structure. and that's widely admitted that, for example, in the book of uh, Acts, James appears to be the Bishop of the Church of Jerusalem, assisted by a body of elders and deacons. So how do you get from this early New Testament structure? to what you read of in Ignatius' letters and Irenaeus and Tertullian, these other early fathers that assume more or less our sort of Episcopal structure. And I think you see here in Titus, apparently after Paul was released from prison in AD 62, as he pondered his own inevitable uh, departure from the world and that of the other apostles, he realized that there needed to be an adjustment to church structure uh, to adapt to the change in circumstances. And so, when you look at verse five of Titus, this text is often read as if Titus is going from city to city and he's ordaining presbyters to be the pastors of the churches, okay? Um, But what the text actually says is that presbyters are to be put in charge according to city. It literally says, according to city. Appoint presbyters according to city. So what I think he's actually saying is that Titus is to select a presbyter to be in charge of the church in each city in Crete. Um, In other words, to install a bishop over the presbyters to oversee the affairs of the church in that particular location. Um, Paul's language assumes that there are already churches in these cities and furthermore that there are already presbyters who are pastoring these churches what they now need is bishops to be put in charge of each diocese each city so that there will not be needless power struggles over the office of bishop that is which of the presbyters is going to be in charge when the apostles are gone they now are going to need diocesan bishops to fill the power vacuum left by the death of the apostles. And that's why verse seven says that the bishop must be blameless because what he's talking about in verse five is appointing a presbyter to be the bishop for each city. And in one of the earliest um, non-New Testament writings, first Clement, uh, Clement, who's writing a letter to the church at Corinth, Um, talks about this he's writing from rome to corinth and he talks about this transition and i think it's the very transition that's happening here in the book of titus Uh, first clement chapter 44 verses 1 and 2 says this Um, and so i'm quoting now from that uh, work our apostles also knew through our lord jesus christ that there would be strife on account of the title of bishop For this reason, therefore, having received complete foreknowledge, they, the apostles, appointed those ministers mentioned earlier and also afterwards gave instructions that if they should pass away, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. In other words, the apostles appointed men to be their successors in exercising the office of bishop over the churches. And so I think that 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 transition that's described in First Clement is actually the transition that's happening here as elders are selected in each city um, to be the bishop over the particular uh, diocese in their location. So um, that's what I think is going on there. So I actually think that the shift of language from elders to singular bishop in verses 5 and 7, uh, more or less supports our Episcopal uh, church polity, and whereas this is often cited as a proof text for other kinds of church polity. I think it actually backfires in that sense. Um, now, I know I went through all that very quickly, but does everyone basically understand the gist of what I'm saying there about verses 5 and 7?
0: Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's a lot of, there's growth going on. As well, so you've got Christianity is 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 getting out there in these these little towns and larger areas, and and so they've got. Uh, I suppose Titus has been ordaining people.
1: Yes, yeah, that's uh, right.
0: And maybe maybe a bishop here and there. That's that's good. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, Titus is is going from city to city and appointing people to be the bishops in the cities. Uh, uh, selecting from the presbyters right, and that's why it shifts to the singular bishop in verse seven in in my understanding right um so no, so from this point forward already here in the mid sixties the the terms bishop and presbyter are no longer really used interchangeably, and you see that already in place by the beginning of the second century um, more or less um, now so then you get these um these qualifications in verses six and following, but it's actually quarter to nine, believe it or not. Where we've had so much fun uh, that I, I think I'll just leave time for any last questions. And uh, this, these qualifications can, will go pretty quickly, and I can move into chapter two next week. Um, it'd just be a quick comment on each of them. But um, anyone have any general questions about anything we've talked about so far? Or, uh, I'm mindful of st- sticking to the, the time frame we sort of had agreed upon.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah if there's no more questions let's go through those qualifications and then we'll
1: uh... sure so uh you've got blameless in verse six um so bishop must be of good reputation not a notorious sinner uh and i think the point there is no matter how charismatic or how gifted you know their character is very important um husband of one wife verse six also says this. Possibly uh, prohibits uh, divorced and remarried ministers, um, at least under ordinary circumstances, uh, from holding the Episcopal office. Um, But there might be discussion about that. But certainly a bishop could not have a wife and a concubine. A bishop could not have a wife and a favorite slave used for sex. Uh, Practices that were very common in the in the Roman setting of the Book of Titus, wow. they didn't Romans didn't marry more than one woman, but it, but you would have your wife, and then you would have other people that you, uh, that you had uh, intimate relations with um, by sort of agreed power structures, and so that is being prohibited. Um, and it emphasizes the necessity of the uh, of the bishop uh, having good care of his family, um, having faithful children, not accused of insubordination. So the, the bishop is the father of the diocese. He's expected to be a good example of godly fatherhood in his immediate family. Um, is, there, is there
0: a sense here of uh, of the bishop not being violent? Uh, uh,
1: uh, there, there, there certainly is when he says not quick-tempered in verse 7. Um, and, but I'm, uh, I think, uh, that's where I would sort of emphasize, I bring that up. Um, you know, but certainly he's, he is the sort of father that his children, you know, uh, 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 love and respect. And he's just a good model of fatherhood for the community.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but then verse seven, um, we already talked about the shift from presbyter to Bishop language. He's, um, a steward of God, and that is very important. Um, the, 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 as a steward of God, the bishop knows that the church is not his. He's only a steward. Uh, he has no right to be an innovator. He has no right to come in and change things because it's not his church. Right. Uh, uh, he, he has no right to abuse the people uh, or to use them to his own advantage or advancement. You know, The, the church is not his ATM card. Right? To, just to use for fr- uh, frivolous means. Um, if you're mindful of being a steward, you're not going to look at the church as there basically for you to like your own little fiefdom to use for your own purposes or your milk cow or however you want to describe it. Um, not it's self.
0: Quite, with- it's interesting that the that the canons uh, the can the canons of Nicaea. Uh, I mean, actually list these things. I mean, they don't cite they don't cite this text, but these are things that uh, bishops or presbyters can have charges brought against them, uh, and and and, and it, it is expected to be the case. Right. It's, right. It's interesting that I hadn't thought about that before. But canon law, it comes a lot of canon law comes out of these ideas.
1: Oh yes, i, I have no doubt and. Of course, though, the people writing those canons have closely read these texts and, yes. you know, um, not self willed, but, but willing to pres- submit his judgment to the wisdom of the church. Right. right? Uh, not quick tempered, an obvious sign of a lack of tranquility in your own soul is, you know, snapping and, you know, lashing out at people. So it is important that a, that a, a bishop, uh, as a pastor of the people, Um, have control of his uh, his soul his temperament Um, not not given to wine or prone to drunkenness because uh, among other reasons that that tends to go with poor decisions and bishops have a lot of authority and need to make good decisions so they can't be being having their uh, judgment altered by a drinking problem not violent actually says yeah, not violent. So obviously, not a quality for one who emulates the character of the Savior, um, who commands his church to love their enemies. Right, not greedy. Perhaps especially attempting for the bishop, who has an entire city uh, of of congregations and people and their givings at his disposal, not to see that as an opportunity to, you know, uh, become attracted to worldly wealth. Right. Yeah. Um, And hospitable, verse eight, welcoming and generous, lover of what is good. All I had there is just that we show our character by what we love. Right. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, sober-minded. Again, the importance of good judgment. Just because they will have to resolve disputes between congregations or people within churches. Holy. Um, specifically says holy. I think that that especially means they're prone to the prayer and study of scripture, set apart for holy things, self-controlled, not ruled by their passions. They make wise decisions and holding fast the faithful word. This is stressed again and again in the pastoral letters, the, the, the importance that we don't let innovators into the ministry, especially the positions of authority that take it upon themselves to come in and change what's been passed on to them. That's always the death knell of, as you well know, uh, that's what happened to the Episcopal Church, uh, right? In America. Um, And um, uh, able, by sound doctrine, to exhort and convict those who contradict. Obviously that's, you see the positive and the negative sides Mm -hmm. of teaching there, exhorting positively, convicting, uh, refuting, correcting those who teach in error. And there's always a the need to keep those things in balance, the positive and the negative in teaching and communication. And uh, so I think probably verse 10 would be a good place to, to pick up um, next week. I mean, I've got more here, but I'll be rushing through it really quick. I don't
0: know that it'll be. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank That's you so good. much, Paul.